This morning, we'll be looking at the third piece of armor in verse 15. And so what I'll do is read verses 10 through 15 just to kind of get us back into this context, and then we'll specifically look at what I've entitled this message as the shoes of the gospel, the shoes of the gospel. Starting in verse 10, we read, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Father, we bow our heads before you this morning and we pray that you would intervene in our lives by allowing us to understand this passage. God, I pray that you would illuminate through the power of the Holy Spirit each one of us this morning as we consider what we need to know so that we can fight the battle. I pray, God, that we would not be afraid of the devil and that we would not continue to give him ground. Rather, this day, may we stand firm on the armor you provide and may we employ it in hand-to-hand combat as is necessary. And we pray, God, that this day, you would encourage us and give us great hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the winter of, of, let me start over. In the winter of 1777 and 78 was the low point of the America uh, uh, battle for independence. The troubles began on August when a British fleet unloaded a force of redcoats at the top of the Chesapeake Bay with the objective of capturing the American capital, which at the time was located in Philadelphia. The Americans were routed by the British at the Battle of Brandywine on September the 11th, leaving Philadelphia undefended. Members of the Continental Congress fled the city and the Continental Army was on the retreat. The Continental Army suffered another defeat at the Battle of Germantown, just north of Philadelphia, on October the 4th, again 1777. General Washington led his weary, demoralized army to Valley Forge, a few miles away, where they would camp for the winter and prepare for battle in the return of the warm weather the following spring. Conditions in the camp were horrendous that winter. Forced to live in damp, crowded quarters, Washington's army of approximately 12,000 soldiers suffered from a lack of adequate clothing and food. Diseases such as typhoid, dysentery, typhus, and pneumonia ran rampant. An estimated 2,000 men died that winter, which is about one-tenth of the entire army. 700 horses also died of starvation. Needless to say, the morale of the army plummeted and the future of America was hanging in the balance as they waited in Valley Forge. One of the most embarrassing realities was the simple fact that the Continental Army did not have enough shoes. It was noted in one of the soldiers' letters back home that the most difficult item to get was an adequate pair of shoes. And while some soldiers had shoes, they were in need of repair due to long marches and inclement weather. Many of the privates of the independent artillery company were actually fighting barefoot. Driving rains turned snow and sleet into cold suffering for these men who had no shoes. General Washington wrote, quote, You might have tracked the army to Valley Forge by the blood of their feet. Close quote. George Washington was in despair as he watched his army disintegrate. However, as time progressed, a transformation occurred. Under Washington's inspired leadership, conditions eventually improved. More food, equipment, and new recruits reached the camp, lifting the spirits of the soldiers. More importantly, new shoes had arrived. The barefoot men 
of the army could now stand and begin training for the upcoming battles. Washington immediately assigned General Baron von Steuben, a former leader in the Prussian army and a seasoned soldier, the task of training the Continental Army. Drilling started immediately. From dawn to dusk, individual soldiers, companies, regiments, and battalions were incessantly schooled in the art of war. What had been a ragtag and undisciplined collection of individuals became a cohesive fighting force. Out of this terrible winter emerged a new army, confident and ready to do battle. None of this could have happened without the proper footwear. An army is only as strong as its feet. The Christian soldier is no different. Without the proper shoes of the gospel, the Christian will be defeated by the enemy. Without protecting and preparing your feet for battle, you will not make it very long. While a Christian soldier may have put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, if he does not have on the shoes of the gospel, he will not be able to ultimately take his stand. For there is no standing firm if you cannot stand up. There is an urgency seen here in our text of Ephesians 6. If you do not prepare for battle, you will lose. If you don't prepare for this battle this morning, you will lose the battle tonight. If you don't prepare for the battle today, you will give in to the enemy this week. For if you do nothing, the enemy will do everything within his power to overcome you and to take your ground. Church, we have been challenged by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and through this text that we would stand against the battle on a daily basis. Are your feet shod with the gospel of peace? Are you entering into the battle barefoot, unprepared, and ill-equipped to withstand in the evil day? Are you able to stand firm? Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about the shoes of the gospel, and we're going to do that by looking at four major headings that will help us unpack four major words contained here in verse 15. The words that we'll be looking at will have to do with the idea of shod or shoes for your feet. We'll look at the word readiness, the word gospel, and then the word peace. So let's start off with the first heading here, if we can this morning, the Roman war boot, the Roman war boot. Now, hopefully you remember that Ephesians is written by Paul from a Roman prison. He was on house arrest, and no doubt Paul had seen hundreds of Roman soldiers. So as he's writing this letter to the church of Ephesus, it may be that he's actually looking at the typical Roman soldier. If he's not looking at the typical Roman soldier, he's certainly remembering the Roman soldiers that he has seen in his travels from Israel to Rome. And so he's describing the Roman, the Roman soldier's giddy-up, that is, his armor. And what is interesting about verse 15 is there's actually no definite word of armor mentioned. In the original language here, we have the word shod, which I'll talk about in just a second, and we have the word for feet. But there's not an actual piece of equipment leaving us to understand that what's inferred here is that there's some type of shoe to go on the foot to prepare this soldier for war. You may remember the old term that the King James used, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The NASB uses the same translation, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so just like we had to tackle what in the world does it mean to gird up your loins with truth, we must tackle this morning what does it mean to shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. Well, I'm happy to let you know this morning it's very simple. The word supplied for shod is the word hupateo, which simply means to put on or to bind on or to fasten under. It no doubt is re referring to straddling on, fastening on your sandals. It is used in the New Testament uh, uh, three different times, this word hupadeo, used three times. The other two times it's used, both accounts refer to someone putting on their sandals. Mark chapter 6, verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey. This is Jesus challenging his, the 12 when he sent them out two by two, to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. That's the word for shotting their feet. They were hupadeo. They were wearing sandals, binding on, strapping on, putting on sandals on 
their feet. The only other place where the word is used in the New Testament is in the book of Acts, where the angel of the Lord freed Peter from the prison in, in uh, Acts chapter 12. Acts 12, 7 and 8 uses the word shod when we read, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on or shod your feet with these sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And so basically we see that we're talking about putting on your shoes, strapping on your sandals, preparing for the battle. You must have your feet prepared. Well, shoes have become a major part of our culture today. Practically all people in America wear some type of shoe every day. And there's certainly other cultures around the world, particularly in third world countries, where not many people wear shoes every day. In fact, I remember being on a mission trip to Brazil where I spent a month in 1995 sharing the gospel with Brazilians along the tributaries of the Amazon. We would pull up in our little riverboat, we would stop in a little town, and no matter where we were in the jungle, they had cut down enough trees for a soccer field. So we would show up, we would greet the leaders of the village, and then we would challenge them to a game of soccer. The little kids would want to play us American college students, but we noticed that we had an advantage, for we had shoes on, and these little Brazilian kids had no shoes on. So we decided we'd be nice, make it an even playing field, and we took off our shoes and socks. Big mistake. For those kids routed us as we're running around the soccer field like this. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ah, the whole time, because we have precious little tender American feet. And these Brazilians were ready for battle, and they killed us on the soccer field. So we just understand that in some places in the world, they still go barefoot, but in the United States, uh, while shoes were certainly originally designed to protect the feet, we now use them as a fashion item. We don't really need that much protection for our feet anymore. Our streets are paved. All the public places you go are either carpeted or have some type of tile or hardwood floor. And so unless you're doing some type of outdoor work or recreation, we don't really need uh, shoes for protection. It's not like we commonly wade through mud, trample through a field, or stroll across any thorny bushes. So we need to understand things were different when this passage was written. The terrain was terrible. It was hard to walk over cobbles, rocks, pebbles, and thorns in the Middle East. And so we might appreciate the need for shoes more by understanding that we need shoes for special activities that we do participate in today, whether that's hunting or hiking or maybe even just walking across blistering hot pavement. In those times, you really are thankful for a pair of flip-flops or some type of shoe, right? Today, we have shoes for every conceivable occasion. In today's culture, you need dress shoes, casual shoes, beach shoes, pool shoes, hiking shoes, hunting shoes, work shoes, cowboy shoes, yard shoes, prom shoes, wedding shoes, tuck shoes, mall shoes, camp shoes, house shoes, and Sunday shoes, and more. We got to have all kinds of shoes. I haven't even started on sports yet. I remember playing high school baseball where I finally got my first pair of metal spike cleats, and I thought I'd made it to the big leagues when I'm walking across the baseball diamond with those metal cleats sinking into the sand. Right? Every sport has its own kind of shoes. In fact, you just call them whatever the sport is. If it's basketball, it's basketball shoes. If it's football, you need football shoes. If it's soccer, you need what? Soccer shoes. If it's ballet, you need ballet shoes. If it's dance, you need dance shoes. Every sport has its own type of shoe. You don't even have to be active in sports to really like shoes. Did you know that? The average American woman today owns 27 pair of shoes. Now, I thought that was a little low. But the average woman owns 27 pair of shoes. The average man, less than half, about 12, about 12 pair of shoes for the guys. In fact, the average woman buys, according to the internet, uh, one pair of shoes per month. Well, we know that the Roman soldiers needed shoes, right? They, they wore heavy sandals with soles made of layers of, lever, le of leather averaging three-fourths of an inch thick. These sandals could be stuffed with wool or fur in the wintertime to make them officially the very first pair of Ugg boots. 
Josephus reports to us that the image Paul has in mind comes from the Roman soldier's war boot, the caliga, or half boot, which the legionnaire regularly wore while on duty. It was an open-toed leather boot with heavily nail-studded soles, which tied Uh, were tied to the ankles and shins with straps. These boots were made for marching, especially in battle. Much like properly cleated football shoes help the offensive linemen stand tall and hold the line of scrimmage in a football game, these war boots gave the foot traction and prevented sliding and slipping. Much ancient battle was hand-to-hand and foot-to-foot. So these boots gave the Roman soldier an advantage over ill-equipped foes. And remember, our context here in Ephesians 6 is all about standing firm. It's not about attacking. It's not about going on the offensive so much as it is about resisting the schemes of the devil. We are to have our loins girded with the belt of truth. We are to stand in confidence in the righteousness of Christ, and we are to wear our spiritual shoes, war boots, in order to remain immovable and steadfast. And so as the Roman soldier would prepare for battle, he would wear the proper shoe. And it is important that we have the right shoe as well. If it's important for athletics, how much more important is it for your life when you're fighting to the death? So the soldier's footwear served several functions. We've already alluded to these, but let me just read them for you so you can fill them in on your outline. There are at least three advantages to wearing these kind of war boots. Number one, or A, mobility. Mobility to march and to move in battle. The Roman soldier had to have the kind of shoe that would last for long marches. He would often cover tremendous amounts of terrain and at a fast pace. Many battles have been lost because soldiers didn't have adequate shoes. There were many occasions when in the ancient world, Alexander the Great and later Julius Caesar had stunning victories because of the long distances they were able to travel in a very short amount of time, all because they had decent shoes, they were able to catch the enemy off guard in some type of surprise attack. War boots also provided, your next blank, protection against rough terrain and sharp objects. During the time of the Roman Wars, a method similar to minefields of modern warfare was used for approaching armies. A certain army would place razor-sharp sticks in the ground facing the approaching army in hopes of piercing the feet of the soldiers. To protect themselves, the Roman soldiers would wear a boot with a heavy sole so that their feet could not be pierced. If a soldier's feet were pierced, he couldn't walk. He could be the best soldier in the army, but if the bottom of his feet were seriously injured, he would not be able to adequately fight. He could uh, could hurt his arms, his hands, his elbows, his shoulders, and possibly keep moving. But if he hurt his feet, he was debilitated. Even the greatest soldier couldn't fight unless he could stand up. Lastly, war boots provided stability to grip the soil and prevent slipping. The Roman soldier wore a thick-soled, hobnailed semi-boot. The leather straps that tied around the foot and ankle held the shoe on plenty tight. On the bottom of the soles were hobnails, which are little pieces of metal that protruded like cleats of a football track or baseball shoe to give him ability to grip the soil. This shoe gave him firmness of footing so that he could stand in the battle. And so Paul is picturing a Roman soldier standing firm, able to hold his ground and to make quick moves without slipping, sliding, or falling. Like a Roman soldier fighting for his life, you and I are fighting for our lives in a spiritual battle. We must have on the shoes of the gospel in order to win the fight. You can have your waist girded up with the belt of truth. You could be wearing a breastplate of righteousness, but unless you can stand on your own two feet, you are going to fall. That's why you must have a solid base in the shoes of the gospel. The second heading I want you to see this morning is the readiness of the soldier. The readiness of the soldier. You must be prepared for the attack of Satan. You must be ready for spiritual warfare. The Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground where we fight every day for the gospel's sake. We must be ready. And so the word readiness here in verse 15, notice how it says, and as your shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, or that word could also be translated as 
preparation, as it is in the NASB, or even it could be translated as equipment. The, the idea is it's in the noun form here in this verse. It's the only place it's found in the noun form in the entire Bible. But in the verb form, it's found in, in about 40 different contexts. And in those 40 different places where the word preparation or ready is found in a verb form, half of them have to do with a gospel context. Let me give you an example of where the word ready or preparation as a verb is used in a gospel context. Matthew chapter 3. We read, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is our word readiness or preparation in the verb form. He's saying that John the Baptist is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah to prepare, to make straight the way of the Lord. It's used in the parable by the Lord Jesus Christ of the wedding feast. Matthew chapter 22, verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And so here's a parable about why there's an invitation given for many to come to the wedding feast, for it has already been prepared. It has already been made ready. John 14, the word is used again in a verb form, in a gospel context. We know John 14, 6 says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Before that, in verses 2 and 3, we read, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to, what? Prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Again, this word is used again and again throughout the New Testament to talk about being ready for the gospel, being prepared for the gospel, that there's something that's got to be done so that you and I are ready to fight. And you might ask here in our Ephesians 6, 12 uh, context, what, who are we fighting against? Well, here it says clearly that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, and against spiritual forces. That's who it is that we're fighting against. And I would add to that, if you, you looked at the whole Bible, the spiritual battle that we fight, uh, we, in that spiritual battle, we have three powerful foes. The first one is the flesh. That's your next blank. Not only are we fighting against the devil, but we're fighting against the flesh. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 is the, probably the most common passage that we often would turn to to look at Paul, who we believe, or at least I believe, uh, that he was a believer, a Christian who still fighted, uh, was fighting with the remnants of his own sinful nature. In fact, if you'll look at Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 5, we read, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we might serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he's simply saying that the law of God helped expose sin of which he has repented of, and now he has been reborn in Christ, and he now is going to fight the fight of faith. It's kind of what he's talking about, the difference between the law of sin and the law of the spirit. But as he continues throughout the chapter, look down to verse 13 through 15, did that which is good, that's referring to the law of God, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So he's saying, by looking at the scripture, the laws and commands of God, he sees his sin for what it is. And he's now been reborn, but he still fights against it. For we see in verse 14, for we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So Paul here is acknowledging, even though I'm a Christian, I'm no longer fully a slave to sin. I still have remnants of the sinful nature, for I have not yet been glorified. And so while positionally we're made perfect before Christ, Practically, it's a daily process of walking in the righteousness of God. And so he says in verse 16, Now, if I do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability, but not the ability to carry it out. So he's saying, hey, in my own strength, I cannot do this. I cannot win this war against the flesh on my own. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So he's like, hey, when I'm trying to do the right thing, evil is right there. And I've got to be ready to fight against the flesh. Because then he says, for I delight in the law of, the, of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war. There's our spiritual warfare terminology. We're still waging war, verse 23 says, against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. It's just a reminder that we can't always say the devil made me do it. Right? We are fighting a spiritual battle against the devil, but we are also fighting against the flesh. We're fighting against, your next blank, the world. We fight against the world and its distractions. Turn with me to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So we have three foes, the flesh, the world. So here in 1 John 2, 15, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so while it, while it encompasses the world does the desire of the flesh, it also is a larger realm referring to any system of evil in this world. We are sometimes tempted, not necessarily from a desire within but rather from a temptation that comes from the world. And so there is this challenge that's going on that we're fighting against the flesh. We're fighting against the world. And last, we're fighting against the devil. And that's the context that we're in here in Ephesians 6. He's saying here, you're having a direct battle with the devil himself and his demons. It's mentioned four other times, or three other times rather, in the New Testament. Ephesians 4.27, just two chapters before our text, we're told, give no opportunity to the devil. It's mentioned again in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's mentioned another time in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. And so we have to understand that this day, this battle that we fight is against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Now, the good news is, is that you do not have to determine which foe it is because you fight them all the same. In any given moment, under temptation, under duress, in a weak moment, you could be fighting the devil, you could be fighting the world, and you could be fighting the flesh. And you may never know exactly which foe it is, but you know you fight them all the same. As I've been preparing this series, I've leaned heavily on John MacArthur's book, which was published in 1992, many of you remember it, How to Meet the Enemy, Arming Yourself for Spiritual Warfare. And as someone who's been to the Master's Seminary and heard John in a bunch of different settings, at the Shepherd's Conference and seminary Q&As and uh, other conversations as well, I've heard him tell a story about how he did spiritual warfare casting a demon out of a young girl. Maybe some of you have heard this one story he tells, and let me quote for you uh, what he writes in his book, because there's one section of the story I had never heard before, all right? So here's, here's how he writes it in his book, To Meet the Enemy, pages 103, 104. He says this, one evening I was called to the church and found one of our elders contending with a demon-possessed girl. The demons used her mouth to speak, but the voices coming out of her mouth were not her own. Amazing things were going on in that room. She had flipped over a desk and was smashing other things in the room. When I walked into the room, she suddenly sat on a chair, gave me a frenzied look, and in a voice not her own, said, get him out. Not him, get him out. MacArthur then writes, I was glad that the demons knew whose side I was on. 
At first, we didn't know what to do. I always appreciate it when a godly man says, I didn't know what to do. This is what he says. At first, we didn't know what to do. This is the new part I'd never heard before. You ready? At first, I didn't know what to do. We tried to speak to the demons. We commanded them to tell us their names, and we ordered them in Jesus' name to go to the pit. We spent two hours trying to send those demons out of her. And then he writes this. When we finally stopped trying to talk to the demons and dealt directly with that young woman, we began to make some headway. We presented the gospel to her, explaining that she needed to confess and forsake her sins. She prayed with a repentant heart, confessed her sin, and found true deliverance in salvation. By doing so, she shod her feet with the gospel of peace. She left that night standing firm. The demons were gone, and it never troubled her again. Now, I think the reason I was so impacted by that as I read it this week is, number one, can you believe that John MacArthur asked those demons what their names were? and tried to send them in the pit for two hours. I wish I could have been there just to watch that. So it just encouraged me as a young pastor, we don't always know what to do in the moment of. Number two, the thing that encouraged me is I think that John lies out for us the best method of spiritual warfare, which was not his first approach, but rather his second approach, which was we began to talk to the young girl about her sin about her need for the gospel, and about repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice how he said it was only then that we began to make headway into her life, and when she turned from her sin and turned to Christ, she was set free from the devil and demonic activity. And so I think that what we're learning here is that that the idea of spiritual warfare is you may not know what to do, but what you can always do is make sure that you're shotting yourself with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that you're simply approaching any apparent unbeliever or demon-possessed person with the gospel. You talk to them about sin and repentance and faith, and if they're not going to listen to you, and if they're not going to make any headway in that moment, I would treat them as I would someone who's intoxicated, which is, I'm going to have to wait till the next day, and maybe we can talk when you have some sanity about you. When you have sobered up, I'll be happy to talk with you about how you can be set free from the foe that you're fighting, which only comes through the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the meantime, we're to be prepared. We're to be ready. That's why Matthew 24, 42 says, therefore keep watch. Mark 13, 33, be on guard, be alert. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, be on the alert, stand firm. Titus 3, verse 1 says, to be ready. 2 Timothy 2, 21 says, to be prepared for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 17 says, you are to be equipped for every good work. 1 Peter 3, 15, always being ready. 1 Peter 5, 8, be controlled and alert. And so my question to you is, how do you prepare? How can you get ready? With what are you equipped? And that leads us to our third heading this morning. Number three, it's the reality of the gospel. You're to prepare yourself by being so saturated in the word of God that you understand exactly what the gospel is and how the gospel is to be used in spiritual warfare. And so let's ask the obvious question, what is the gospel? Because in the world that we live in today, it is being punted. It is being watered down. It is being offered as with heretical thoughts that the gospel is some, something other than it is. And so we must always make sure we understand that the gospel is, number one, understanding that God is the creator and he is perfectly holy. We're not talking about some higher power. We're not talking about all gods are the same God. We're talking about Yahweh, creator God, 24-hour literal days in Genesis 6. We're talking about him who is perfectly holy, who knows all things, who has all power and ability. It is this God that must be established if we're going to be accurate with talking to someone about the gospel. Number two, we must talk to them about how man is a sinner and deserving of judgment. This would be the biggest factor that most, uh, most people who are watering down the gospel don't mention, and that's simply sin or repentance. They'll talk to you about God, and they'll talk to you about his love, but they never talk to us about the fact that the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. You and I deserve to die and suffer in hell for all eternity because of our own sin. So we have God 
man, the third part of the gospel that must be clarified is Jesus. Jesus is the only Savior through his sacrifice. There's no other way to heaven except through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him and not perish can have everlasting life. God demonstrates his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then we must talk about you. You've got to respond to this message. The gospel in one sense is objective, but in the next sense, it is something that has to be believed and that you're held accountable to, which is why I say, number four, you must repent and believe in the gospel. John 1.12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance of God are overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, which is a little bit more of a reminder that the gospel isn't necessarily just an invitation so much as it is a commandment that we're to follow. And so the gospel given here in Ephesians 6.15 is the word euangelion. It's in the New Testament 76 times. It simply means the good news. And the word for good news or gospel is in Ephesians three other places. It's in chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13, where we read, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And so in that first context, it's used in that section of Ephesians where Paul has established the fact that we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, that we've been redeemed by Christ through the gospel, and we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance. The second place the word gospel is used in this book of Ephesians is in chapter 3, verse 6. There we read, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's an amazing truth that while God chose the Jews to be his special people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, his focus turns to all people who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. And it was this mystery that was hidden to some degree in the Old Testament that is now made clear that Jews and Gentiles make up one new man in the church, and that all happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last place it's used in Ephesians is in chapter 6, where we are, down in verse 19, where he says, And so also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And there I think he's still talking about it's a mystery that the gospel was hidden, but it's now made clear that Christ can live in you, that God in the person of Jesus Christ dwells in his children. And we'll be looking at that verse more in a few weeks, but what we're saying right now is that many who have written uh, on this subject about the gospel have a view that here is an opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel in the midst of warfare. And that's a very understandable interpretation of this particular verse, that the gospel is something to be preached or proclaimed. In fact, many who reach this conclusion do so based on the cross-reference of Romans 10, 15, that says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, which is a quote from Isaiah 52, 7. So the question is, in this context, is Paul saying we need to preach and proclaim the gospel, you can see how this conclusion could be assumed as both passages are dealing with feet and good news. And there's no question that the gospel of peace is something to be preached. The difference is, in this context of Ephesians 6, it doesn't seem to be emphasizing evangelization or preaching. It is about resisting and standing firm. It is not about advancing the faith so much as it is about protecting the faith. The main verbs of this passage are be strong, put on the full armor, and stand firm. And so having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace is one way to do that. And so I see it more here as Paul is not talking about going, he's talking about standing. The idea is best expressed in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, stand firm in the faith. Even here in our context of Ephesians 6, verse 11, it says that you may be able to stand. In verse 13, and having, uh, that you will be able to withstand, and in the evil day, having done all, to stand firm. And so I believe that these verses are not so much about, about sending out as they are about standing firm. Now let me just 
say, certainly the gospel is to be preached, and the feet of those who go out are beautiful. But that's not the best understanding of this particular context from where I sit. This verse refers to the believer who is in conflict with Satan. And Paul is saying that since our feet are shod with the good news of peace, we can stand our ground. We don't need to slip. We don't need to slide. We don't need to fall when we're under attack. We can stand on the gospel that was delivered once and for all for the saints. And let me give you three areas where the church needs to stand firm on the gospel. And it looks like this in your next blank. How is the gospel under attack? Three areas, just quickly. Number one, the authority of Scripture is under attack. Today, people attack the gospel by only looking at some verses that refer to salvation and not others. Many preachers today, again, won't talk about sin or repentance or the need to turn. They'll only talk about how God is love. And we need to understand this morning that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The gospel is under attack by attacking the usage of the full counsel of the Word of God. Number two, the gospel is under attack by attacking the atonement of Christ. The atonement of Christ. There are many today who would say, how could a God of love kill his son, crush his only son on the cross? It makes no sense. It's murder. They would say it's cosmic child abuse. So how could a God of love kill his own son? And so they attack the gospel by attacking the atonement. And therefore, liberal Christians are backpedaling, trying to figure out another way people could be saved other than the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The Bible teaches that Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. A third place where the attack, possibly at this very moment, is the most faithful attack of the enemy against the church today, I'm going to say is this one. Number three, the application of biblical morality is under attack. There are many Christians falling left and right, saying that the gospel is not turning from your sin and turning to Christ. The gospel, rather, is embracing your sin and embracing Christ at the same time. They say it's embracing sin by quickly saying nobody's perfect. Therefore, if you live a sinful lifestyle, particularly in the area of sexual immorality, that's okay. The false teachers are saying to us this day, do what you want with who you want, however you want, and it's okay. We're not here to judge you because God's a God of love. The Bible says the exact opposite. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is a fight of salvation. He's saying here, look, there are unrighteous people who will not be saved. Who are they? And he even says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. My friends, the gospel is about turning from sin and turning to Christ. And if you want to embrace ongoing, unrepentant, sinful activity, as well as claim to be a Christian, then that casts you outside of the idea of the kingdom of heaven. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You must turn from your sin. You must turn to Christ. You must live a moral life only by the grace of God who regenerated you and then who will sustain you to the very end. Now, I'm not saying morality saves you. I'm simply saying those who hold to immorality with an open mind that is not being repented of or forsaken cannot claim to have the true gospel. Denomination after denomination after denomination in this country have fallen to the LGBT movement. They are embracing it hook, line, and sinker. And I'm telling you, it will not stand on the judgment day. Those who embrace sin and embrace Christ will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. We must be ready to hold the ground by which God has given us in the gospel. We don't have to go looking for a fight. They're coming to us, and we must defend the true gospel. This leads us to our fourth point, if we can, this 
morning, point number four, let's talk about the repository of peace. A repository is a place in which something has accumulated or where it is found in significant qualities or quantities, found in significant quantities. My friends, there is a rich and deep repository of truth and of peace found in God. And the way I see it, when we talk about the gospel of peace, that could be understood one of two ways. A, peace with God. The fact that we were enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 talks clearly about how, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so there's first peace with God that we must have in our saving faith. But there's another kind of peace that could be thought of here. Not only do we have peace with God, we also have the privilege of having the peace of God, the peace of God. So in addition to having peace with God, there comes a holy sequel, the peace of God. In the upper room on the final night of his earthly life, Jesus told his disciples, peace I leave with you. He gives us personal peace peace. It was the peace that he knew as he lay fast asleep in the boat in the midst of the raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's the peace that so unnerved the fearful Pilate as he interrogated Christ in John 19. Jesus stood firm because he had the peace of God. The word behind this is shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, meaning completeness, soundness, or welfare. Thus, we can paraphrase Jesus' words when he says, peace be with you. He could be saying, peace and well-being I leave with you. My peace and my well-being I give you. And so we, we understand this peace of God, possibly also seen in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the what? peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so I appreciate on this text, Kent Hughes writes this, quote, those who, have first have, those who first have peace with God and then the corollary peace of God, girding their feet are powerful soldiers in the spiritual battle. No matter what the enemy throws at them, no matter what the enemy makes, they hold their ground. And so I think what I'm saying here is you must have both. You must have the peace with God through salvation, you must have the peace of God so that you don't fight the battle in fear, that you are not given over to worry, that you are not given over to anxiety, that you are not given over to despair, that you are not given over to fear, but rather you stand your ground in the gospel of peace. And I'm sure that you've heard this common epigram, the cobbler's children have no shoes. Ever heard that? The cobbler's children have no shoes. It simply means that out of all the children in the town, certainly the cobbler's children have their shoes. But so many cases, the cobbler's children have no shoes. What application does that have to this? I'm saying that so many Christians have the peace with God, but they don't have the peace of God. They're running all over town without having the peace of God because they're worried to death about every single thing. They are afraid of what everybody thinks about what our culture is doing. And what I'm saying is, isn't it, isn't it ironic that those of us who have the peace with God should be having the most peace of God? If you are a Christian, then you are a child of God and an ultimate promoter and preparer of lasting peace. People ought to look at you as Christians and be like, there's a peaceful person. That person's not a worry wart. That person is not standing beside themselves. That person is always calm always trusting, always steady, because there's something different about them, and we know that to be the peace of God. But the tragic irony is, is that many of us do not have the peace of God because we have pushed it away through rebellion and neglect. And as a result, we are falling in the battle. So this morning, let me encourage you to come to that great cobbler who has provided for you spiritual shoes, Christian war boots with which you were able to take your stand. Let me this morning call you out of Valley Forge and let you know you're ready to be put back in the fight. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you're not yet in the army of the Lord, let me call you out of darkness 
and out of worry and out of anxiety and out of a life on its way to hell. And let me call you on this day to the God who offers terms. He offers terms of peace through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, who has defeated death. He has defeated the devil. He has defeated your sin. If you'll simply turn from your sin and turn to Christ this day, you can be saved. God offers you peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must turn to this peace today if we want to live a life that matters and a life that counts for God. Let me give you just three final thoughts there in your take-home section. Do not try to fight the battle barefoot. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. So let us not go out on this day or try to stand our ground barefoot or you'll get whooped up on like those Brazilian kids beat us in soccer, but rather put on the preparation of the gospel of peace. Number two, don't let the culture redefine the gospel. Look to God's word for gospel clarity. You and I must stand firm in this culture while we have friends who claim to be Christians from any of a number of churches who are compromising the gospel, may it not be true of you. May you stand firm graciously, kindly, confidently in the gospel without giving an inch, without letting the devil take any more ground. We stand on the gospel of peace. And lastly, don't live at war with God, but experience his peace. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. May we be faithful to wear the shoes of the gospel this day and throughout this week in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage that is just an amazing reminder to us of the beauty of the feet of those who bring good news. And for those of us who only by your grace have come to terms of peace with you through your son, Jesus Christ, we've now been called to suit up in this armor of God. We've now been called to wear these war boots and to wear them well. And so I pray on this day, God, we would not be afraid of any foe, that we would not give in to any enemy, that we would not be overcome by the devil himself because we're standing with our belt of truth girded around our loins, with the breastplate of righteousness on our torso, and with our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. May we on this day not only experience peace with you, but may we experience the peace of God that would allow us to be so tranquil, so calm, so trusting this week that others would ask us what's different about the security in which we're standing and we could tell them about the gospel of the peace of God. And so God, I pray that you would bless us as a church as we think about these things, as we discuss some of this in small groups, as we discuss it even with our families on this day. May we gird up our loins May we place on the breastplate of righteousness. May we have our feet prepared, ready with the gospel you provide and the peace that you give us through Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.